0: Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Constellation 8 Science Fiction and Fantasy Convention on April 29, 2017. Scott, from the Bennett Martin Public Library, discusses a variety of Star Trek-related books. Welcome to... To boldly go, a Star Trek book talk. My name is Scott Clark, and I am a library employee here for the Lincoln City Library System, um, three blocks away at the Benna Martin Library downtown at 14th and N Street. Uh, to celebrate Star Trek's 50th anniversary, which most of you probably remember took place last September, um, I presented two book talks. Um, our library system has two book groups. For Star Trek's 50th anniversary, I gave This talk, um, which I'm going to sort of give you a a shorter version of today, the one I gave at the library was more like an hour and a half, and we barely scratched the surface of my talk, so I'm going to sort of race through some of uh, what I consider to be my favorites or the most noteworthy of Star Trek books in in publishing history. I am going to sort of jump all around here, but I have a prize for somebody who can tell me, other than Mike, you don't count, uh, what was the first Star Trek original fiction novel that was published. We're not talking about the James Blish novelizations of the episode. What was the very first one? Beyond the Unreal McCoy. First published. First, yeah. first professional published. I, or it wasn't, a, it wasn't a novelization of a TV there episode. That was not a novelization of a TV episode. Any guesses? I'm going to give you the prize just because you spoke up. <laughs> oh, you're right. yes. Mission to Horatius, which was part of oh, the... Wow. Uh, Walt, the Whitman Children's Book Series. basically they were original novels based on pop- popular uh, series like I Spy and Mission Impossible, and there was a Star Trek volume. This came out in nineteen sixty eight. Uh, so as far as I can tell, and it and was the first. It was the very was first original novel based on Star Trek that was ever it was published. By Mac Reynolds, who was a fairly well known science fiction author. Yeah, he's and he he did a lot of tie-ins. All right, the prize is. Star Trek novel by Omaha's own Star Trek novelist, M.S. Murdoch. I will point out uh, that as far as I know, she is the only um, author from the state of Nebraska who has had a professionally published uh, by Pocket Books, since they've done their Pocket Book series, novel in the Star Trek series. So, okay, before we get into what we have on the tabletop and what I consider to be some of the the nice ones, uh, I will point out that... I am given a great deal of latitude at the library to create interesting uh, reader's advisory content for our website. We have a site called Book Guide, which if you visit the Lincoln City Libraries website at lincolnlibraries.org, uh, you can easily search through the drop-down menus and find Book Guide, which includes book lists and staff recommendations and all those kinds of things. Schedules for upcoming book talks, that kind of stuff. One of the things that I did several years ago, and I continue to maintain and update um, usually about every five to six months is Star Trek The Reading List. It is a massive, massive book list um, that basically identifies all professionally published Star Trek fa- um, fiction. does not go into the nonfiction, which would be another beast entirely, and that's what some of what we'll talk about here is going to be. Uh, but if you are interested in the novels, specifically of all generations of Star Trek, from classic Trek up through um, Enterprise and all of the spin-offs, things like uh, Star Trek New Frontiers and things like that, all of that is on that website. Uh, If anybody would like to browse through it, I made a printed out copy, and you can see exactly it's in chronological order, but broken down by the individual series that they're based on. So all the classic trick stuff is together. Next Gen, Enterprise, Deep Deep Space Nine, that kind of stuff. Um, So... I'm not going to really talk as much about fiction during this uh, 45 minutes that we have to talk about today. Um, A lot of what I will talk about here is nonfiction. I will say uh, that the earliest uh, Star Trek fiction that was published was the the Blish novelizations. All but the Harry Mudd episodes were included in the Star Trek's 1 through 12 uh, collection of uh, um, novelized um, stories. Those were based on the original scripts. And so sometimes what you got out of James Blish and his novelizations was different than what actually hit the air. In some cases, it was dramatically different from what actually came on the air. And they actually did do the Harry Potter stories later. Yes, they did. Blush's wife, after his death, combined uh, the two Harry Mudd scripts and an original story into into, um, its own separate uh, uh, novel, Mudd's Angels. Uh, So they did eventually get included, just not in that uh, particular set of Star Trek's 1 through 12. Uh, several years ago, on one of the anniversaries of Star Trek, uh, they repackaged the Blush uh, books into three sets uh, that basically were the seasons, Seasons 1, 2, and 3, called the Classic Episodes. Uh, if you're looking through the freebies over here, I have a uh, copy of the Classic Episodes 3, which would be Season 3, um, as one of the freebies that you can pick up and see what the Blush books were like. Uh, Not long after the Blush books uh, took off, which were hugely successful, convincing uh, the publisher of them that there was a market uh, for novels, they started contacting other um, authors and asking them to write original stories. Um, So you got a number of things from Bantam, uh, was the main publisher at that point, uh, including things like Haldeman and Gerald and things like that. It wasn't long before they decided that they also needed to adapt the animated series um, episodes into uh, books. And so you had Alan Dean Foster taking the scripts for all the animated episodes and expanding upon them to create uh, Star Trek Logs 1 through 10, which basically novelized all of the animated episodes. Those were from Valentine. Those were from Valentine, yes. It was in, let's see. 1979, shortly after the release of Star Trek The Motion Picture, that the publishing industry changed with regards to Star Trek publishing, and Pocket Books, a division of Simon & Schuster, became the sole publisher of Star Trek fiction, uh, starting with Star Trek The Motion Picture, the novelization, and then The Entropy Effect by Vonda McIntyre was the first uh, original novel after that. You kind of forgot what. Blish did an original novel called Spock Must Die. Yes, there there were a a number of other um, books by Bantam, uh, including Spock Must Die, and what, about 20 novels altogether um, by Bantam, by a variety of different authors. Not long after the uh, Blish 1 through 12 and Foster Logs 1 through 10, they did start publishing the uh, Star Trek photo novels um, I have several examples here if you'd like to take a look at them. Uh, I will note that I have seen number of them I, I purchased this one from our local novel idea used bookstore but I have seen a number of them in this condition so the the photo quality does tend to break down on the covers it's, it's crazed it basically is like all all broken up but interior pages, have remained really high quality, even in copies that look like they're kind of beaten up. I continue to see the interior photos where they basically take the photos from the episodes and, as you said, put word balloons on them. Um, So if you want to take a look at those, you're welcome to. Uh, They did include uh, a Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan photo story when it came to movie time as well, although, sadly, you'll notice that it is black and white and not as well done by any means uh, as the uh, series photo novels were. Uh, things that I would highlight um, as fiction, I honestly think that the a lot of the earliest novels put out by pocketbooks are among some of the best uh, that Star Trek has put out fiction-wise. There was a point, uh, Next Gen, of course, began in 1987, uh, and it wasn't long after that that... Gene Roddenberry and his minions uh, started to pay a lot more attention to what was being put into the novels. Uh, the novelists were given a lot of free reign to really tell some creative stories back in the 80s. And it wasn't long after the the second series started that edicts came down from Roddenberry's office, maybe not Roddenberry directly himself, maybe it was other people working for Roddenberry that decided that they were going to put a clamp down on exactly what the novelists could do. They were never considered to be true canon, in other words, the things that happened in the books were not supposed to be official Star Trek, they were just for your enjoyment. Um, However, the the powers that be decided that they didn't like some of the freedom that the writers had felt that they were having uh, to tell stories that perhaps potentially altered or changed the long-term characters in a permanent way in some way. So they cracked down and basically uh, came to the point that uh, you could not tell stories, A, that had any long-term effect on the main characters. In other words, they could learn minor lessons, but you couldn't have something that was going to affect them um, in future um, storylines. And B, you could not have guest stars be the star of your storyline. Our, our main core of heroes, the three plus the additional bridge crew types, uh, had to be the st- the heroes of the, the story, and you could bring in some maybe some major guest characters, but you couldn't have them be the, the central core of a storyline. Uh, so that drove away a number of the authors who, who were telling some fascinating stories uh, from that time period and there was a period I would say from the early 90s to beginning of the 2000s where a lot of the Star Trek fiction that was coming out was pretty flat and, and really did not have a lot of life to it. I think in the last 15, 20 year, in the last 15 years there's been a little bit more flexibility from the publishers and so we've had a lot of new authors uh, that were not publishing back then just because they were not old enough um, at that point. A lot of the authors that are writing Star Trek uh, fiction now were just kids back uh, when the first um, publishing stuff began. But there, there's been a lot more creative and challenging fiction being published in recent years. So if you if you happen to visit this website uh, with the library and browse through the massive history of the hundreds, literally hundreds, of Star Trek novels that have been published, um, you'll discover that there are trends of certain authors that show up over and over again. Now, personally, I will say my my book list, I basically talked about the ones that I thought were amongst my favorites of the novels. And to say that, I will say that the book that you won, M.S. Murdoch's novel, is adequately written. It's not a bad story. However, it involves... The Romulans uh, basically being patterned directly after Roman history and in later novels that was completely thrown out so it it really is kind of um, anachronistic uh, with regards to Star Trek history. If you read that it'll be like, That's not anything like what the Romulans are treated like in later things. Um, I personally really enjoyed uh, Vonda McIntyre's Star Trek works, which were some of the original ones from um, Pocket. Uh, Her novelization of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, uh, added some things that were not actually on screen in the storyline. She basically asked for permission to expand upon what she was given in the script. And so we got things like uh, character names and motivations that perhaps were not actually... Revealed on, on screen um, in Star Trek lore. I enjoyed Yesterday's Sun and Time for Yesterday, a, a basically a two part novel that were released five years apart by AC and Crispin. Nicely done. They, they tie into the uh, Star Trek episode in which Spock and Kirk and McCoy uh, basically all get thrown back in time and Spock has an affair with Zara. Um, And these novels posit that a child was born of that, and, and he goes back in time to try to interact with that child. I personally would have to say that uh, Diane Duane is probably one of my two or three favorite Star Trek authors, and she's written quite a few of them. Um, among my favorites are *The Wounded Sky*, which came out in 1983, and *Doctor's Orders* in 1990. Both of those really rank high on my favorites. She also has a whole bunch in her *Rihansu* series, uh, starting with *My Enemy, My Ally*. But there's been several other novels uh, that also tie into the *Rihansu* series. The *Rihansu* are her version of the Romulans. Once again, not official canon with regards to what might appear on screen, but very, very strongly written with really good characters, the the Romulan characters. So this is from that era, basically, when she could create these really elaborate, multi-layered original characters. And then in later years, uh, the authors were told, you can't do that start featuring Kirk and Spock and McCoy again instead of all these new characters that you want to create. And I think she really created a well-rounded world that would have worked perfectly fine as the official on-screen version of the Romulans, but that was not to be. I would point out that uh, several years later, and I don't have it on this list, uh, but several years later, all of her Rihansu novels were collected into a single trade paperback collection, so if you're really interested in those and you can track that down, it's available usually pretty cheap as a used copy, and I highly recommend it. If you're going to sample Star Trek Fiction. Uh, I think it's like the Rehansu Saga or something like that or the Rehansu Collection. I personally enjoyed both the Vulcan Academy Murders and the Idic Epidemic by Jean Laura. Jean Laura had begun as a Star Trek fan fiction author and so she was one of the first uh, who was writing fan fiction who then moved into the actual professional uh, Star Trek publishing area. There's a really strong feeling in those two novels of somebody who has an absolute passionate love for the characters. Uh, They don't necessarily fit the best in terms of the style of all the other professionally published Star Trek, but I really did enjoy them. Uh, She's got a very strong handle, especially on Spock. It's very obvious that that was her favorite character on the show, and he comes across um, very strongly in, in the novels. If I had to list out of the hundreds of Star Trek novels what are my absolute favorites, I would Almost certainly put How Much for Just the Planet by John M. Ford as one of the top five novels. Possibly the top two um, would be my guess. I don't believe I have a copy of that here to pass around. But it is the strangest Star Trek novel you will ever read if you haven't stumbled across it already. John M. Ford only wrote two novels... Um, in the Star Trek category and died at a much too young age. Uh, He also has a number of uh, standalone original novels of his own. Um, I will have to admit I've never read any of his non-Star Trek stuff, but both The Final Reflection and How Much for Just the Planet are unforgettable novels. The Final Reflection is a very, very serious novel that posits uh, or examines the history of Klingons and Vulcans in Star Trek universe and features a young Spock as a character interacting with a, a, a Klingon um, ambassador diplomat. It's very nicely done. It's very serious for what it is. The other end of the extreme is the novel I like the best which is How Much for Just the Planet which is a comic opera farce featuring Star Trek characters. A planet that basically the Klingons and the uh, Federation both want to uh, basically have a trade agreement and and have be part of their empires essentially pits these two forces against each other and there are characters from Star Trek having to sing opera songs there are it, it's basically just. It's, it's like a bedroom farce on stage featuring all these characters that we know and love uh, being basically stuck into something. Imagine the humor of The Trouble with Tribbles. I mean, that's, that's probably about the funniest or, or possibly a piece of the action and the gangster garb and stuff like that. How those take the characters that we know so well and put them into the funniest or silliest of situations and then ramp it up by ten. Uh, That is what How Much for Just the Planet is. Uh, If you ever can track it down. I I used to, for a while, hit all of the used bookstores and watch for copies of that to show up. And I would buy them all and then pass them on to people because it was like, you have to read this novel. Um, It does not show up very often now because so much time has gone by. How Much for Just the Planet was 1987, which was a whole 30 freaking years ago. Uh, So... Uh, For all I can tell you, if you have to ever read just one Star Trek uh, fiction novel, do track that one down if you can. Uh, Jumping ahead through this list, uh, some of these are, are things that I won't talk about specifically. I will say Ishmael by Barbara Hambly Uh, Barbara Hambly is a very well-known novelist in her own right, uh, not in the Star Trek world. Uh, She has a a historical mystery series featuring uh, a black free man detective uh, in the Civil War era living in Louisiana that goes uh, into great detail talking about what the, the culture was for being a black man who is a freed man in a world in which most black men are not free men at that point in time. But this particular series or this particular novel, Ishmael, is a really weird one uh, because she was a hugely really passionate fan of, what was the name of the series with uh, the brothers in the Northwest? Oh, Here Come the Brides. Here Come the Brides. She was a huge fan of Here Come the Brides. Ishmael is Star Trek meets Here Come the Brides. It was not those <laughs> character names, but Spock has, gone, has been thrust back in time, has lost his memory, and is stuck in the plot, basically, of Here Come the Brides. And so she was a, a geeky fan of Here Come the Brides, and she had to write a Star Trek novel featuring Spock as the hero of Here Comes the Brides. Uh, so Ishmael is another one that is kind of a joke novel, but it was published by the mainstream pocket publishing, so uh, for what it's worth, it's interesting. Spock's World was the first, in 1988, was the first hardback. Up to that point, all the novels released in the Star Trek series by Pocket had been numbered. Star Trek, the motion picture being the first one, it didn't have a number, but after that, they all got numbers. And then they started experimenting with hardbacks, with Spock's World, which were not numerically added to that sequence. They stood out of the sequence. And as time went by, basically, eventually pocket pretty much abandoned the numbering sequence, and they also started putting out little mini-series. We have three or four volumes that all tied together, and so the numbering sequence kind of lost its effect, and so they did drop that. You will, however, note uh, if you visit our website and look at um, the uh, fiction guide that I have there uh, that I do show you what the numering sequence was um, if you want to follow that. So, uh, jumping ahead, let's see. Probe by Mar- Margaret Wander Bonanno in 1992. In more recent years, it has been revealed that that was a very difficult novel. Uh, Margaret Wander Bonanno had written a couple of standalone uh, novels that fell within that category of, I'm going to write characters that are new to the Star Trek universe um, and interact with my favorite heroes. Well, she was um, contracted to write Probe, which was basically a sequel to Star Trek IV. You remember the probe that came and needed to talk to the whales, and they had to go back in time to get the whales. Well, the the publisher decided... Uh, We need to have a a sequel to that. Uh, She submitted a novel, and it was repeatedly rejected, and then turned over to other people, including people who were friends of Margaret Wander Bonanno, uh, who would not talk to her about what they were asked to do to her script. It became basically a nightmare in Star Trek publishing. It went through a couple of different... Heads of the publishing department at um, Pocket Books, and that if you if you Google it online, you can find uh, Margaret Wanda Bonano has put out this massive, lengthy essay about exactly what a writer for hire sometimes faces when working with a copyrighted property like Star Trek. It, it is just actually very disillusioning in terms of if you ever wanted to get into that business because it, I mean, she basically was manhandled. Um, and she has actually made her original novel available as a free pdf online so you can read what she actually wrote and compare it against probe the novel that actually came out and ironically enough she says that the novel probe as it came out is not a bad novel she just doesn't want her name on it she thinks as a star trek novel it was perfectly fine she just doesn't want to be credited for it because it's not what she wrote another of my favorite authors jumping a little ahead is peter david Uh, a science fiction author who also is well-known within the comic book community. He's done a number of um, really well-known runs on various uh, um, science fiction sort of uh, um, superhero-type comic books, including a really renowned um, version of The Incredible Hulk. Uh, He has written a number of Star Trek novels. Uh, My favorite of them is The Captain's Daughter, which focuses on Sulu's daughter, who was introduced in Star Trek VI, uh, The Undiscovered Country, Um, and it's a really, really nicely... um, Dunn novel um, where he follows the rules of taking an on-screen character, maybe not one of the mainstream characters that everybody knows and loves like Kirk Spock McCoy, but somebody who was introduced in one of the movies, so therefore is an official character, and tells an interesting story about that uh, within the limits of what he was given. Last of the fiction novels that I put up there for Classic Trek is The Case of the Colonist's Corpse by Tony Isabella and Bob Ingersoll, 2004, which is literally a murder mystery set in the Star Trek universe. Uh, If you'll remember, there was an episode uh, was it Court Martial, where Kirk is basically being uh, put on Court Martial, and he gets the attorney Samuel Cogley, this crusty old guy who doesn't believe in electronics and wants to have legal tomes that that are physical things that you can pick up and smell and stuff like that. Well, basically, he's the hero of this particular novel. He's on a backwater planet where basically he and some investigators have to investigate Um, a death on that colony. So it does not involve any of the traditional characters, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, etc., in any significant way, but it focuses on him and the legal system of the Federation and investigation of crime within the Federation. So I found that to be a fascinating novel. I'm not even going to cover the Star Trek The Next Generation ones. Uh, I will say one of my favorite Deep Space Nine ones uh, is Far Beyond the Stars, which is actually a novelization of the episode in which uh, the characters were all basically 1930s um, earth denizens, and Cisco was a science fiction writer. Um, that novel it was put out by Stephen Barnes, who is a well-established and, and very respected science fiction author, and he himself has said when he looks back at his career that that is one of the novels, even compared to his own original stuff, that he is most proud of. So to have a well-established science fiction author say, it's a Star Trek book that I really think you should take a look at if you want a sample of my work. is actually kind of stunning. I think I did sort of skip over one thing on the classic Trek that I would like to point out. There were three original short works that were done purely as audiobooks. At that point, they were audio tapes because CDs weren't even popular. Those are Transformation, Cacophony, and Envoy by Dave Stern, J.J. Malloy, and L.A. Graff, all of which were... Captain Sulu novels, if you can picture that. They were not full-length novels because it was a a book that appeared in its entirety on a single, double-sided audio cassette, so they were relatively short. However, they were read aloud by George Takei. So it was Captain Sulu Adventures read by George Takei. And if you find those, they're fun to listen to if you have a tape deck still to listen to them on. Um, So I would say if you ever stumble across them, give them a shot because they were fun. Um, You'll see on the rest of my handout uh, some of the other novels that I would recommend. But I don't want to, since it's already 7.35 and we only have about 20 minutes left, I wanted to sort of hit some of these books that are on the table. Amongst the earliest of the Star Trek nonfiction books that came out, uh, these two are amongst the most famous. Uh, The Making of Star Trek, which is by Stephen Whitfield and Gene Roddenberry, is basically a book that goes into uh, what it took to create... A television show in the 1960s. It happens that it was Star Trek that was the television show being focused on, but if you're interested in television history and television production separate from Star Trek by itself, it's an absolutely fascinating novel that really, not novel, fascinating book that goes into great detail about exactly what in that era. Was required to create a television show. It, the fact that it's Star Trek just makes it that much more enjoyable to read. Uh, but I have seen reports that a lot of people in the television industry would recommend this book to people who wanted to find out what it was like to create television in the 1960s it doesn't have to be that you're a star trek fan you can get stuff out of it that's not star trek so whitfield and roddenberry uh basically it's whitfield roddenberry just lent lent his name to it essentially um similarly not long after that uh um the author david gerald who wrote the trouble with Tribbles and has gone on to multiple acclaim was actually the guest of honor at worldcon just a couple years ago put out a book Star Trek's most popular episodes, The Trouble with Tribbles," David Gerald. It's basically a making-of-that episode special. Um, both of those keep getting reprinted by multiple different publishers over the years, so you can find different editions of them. Uh, they're both fun reads, uh, especially if you love the source material that they're talking about. We mentioned Mr. to Horatius before, um, if you ever can track one down, it's a fun read. You could probably read this in about a half an hour, would be my guess. It's, it's super simplistic, um, not complicated, and the characters really don't feel quite right. Speaking of characters that don't feel quite right, however, there's been a series of hardback books put out called Star Trek The Newspaper Comics. Uh, There was a not really long-running, but moderate-running Star Trek newspaper comic, uh, Daily and Sunday, uh, that came out in both the U.S. and the U.K. The U.S. volumes have been put out in two hardback volumes, and basically they reproduce very accurately the appearance of that Star Trek newspaper comic strip. Um, There's a nice little background history in each of the two volumes that talks about the origin of that particular comic strip. The U.S. one is pretty spot on. It captures the characters really nicely. The U.K. one, which um, our library system has both volumes of, is a monstrosity. It, it was nothing like, especially at the very beginning, the second vo- hardback volume uh, is later in the run of the comic strip, and so they've sort of gotten the bumps worked out at that point. But the first volume, the characters don't even have the right names. The the, the name of the Federation is wrong. Starfleet is wrong. The motivations of all the characters are wrong, and it's basically just a shoot up every episode. And it was basically like the U.K. writers and artists were given these brief, like one line descriptions of the characters and they decided to go off and do a, whatever they wanted with them. It wasn't until multiple storylines in the UK comic book that they finally had managed to see episodes and realize, this is awful, we, we did something horrible and they so, so they tailored back and, and recreated it and, and it turned out a little better at that point. The UK S version is very stylistically similar to the TV series and it basically came out at the time of the Star Trek the motion picture and shortly after that so it's basically it it captures the feel of Star Trek the motion picture pretty pretty accurately. The UK version is based on the original series and was released uh, before the UK had the original series on the air and if you ever have a chance to see it just be prepared to it's like fingernails on a chalkboard initially because it's just so off Uh, All right, jumping around on my tabletop here. Uh, This one, I'm not sure if I actually put this on my list or not. This is one of my favorite books, and Mike knows this because he hauls it around with him all the time. (laughs) It is Star Trek Voyages of Imagination, the Star Trek Fiction Companion. This is a catalog of all professionally published Star Trek fiction. Each novel or short story collection is given its own little section in which they tell you what the plot of it is, and where possible have interviewed the author to find out their input on here's what i felt or what was i was thinking about when i was writing that book so this has turned into a really nice volume for mike and i as we're going to conventions to stop and have authors Autograph their pages next to their books, so I've probably got about 35 auto, author autographs in this in this collection. Um, really nice. Unfortunately, I dropped it on the floor, and a big tear appeared on the cover, so it's not as nice as it used to be. But I, I would recommend if you can track it down. Obviously, it came out several years ago, so some of the more recent fiction is not going to be included in that. But as as a thing that is something you could take to conventions and get Star Trek authors to sign, it's great. And and just as something, it's just something to read. I love it. All right, jumping ahead, let's do another oversized one here. This came out a few years ago, and it's a little quirky. Um, It's not one of my favorite Star Trek books, uh, but it is something that I can recommend for a couple of weird reasons. The quirkiness about the Star Trek vault, and there's also a Doctor Who vault as well, so if you're interested in such things, you can find that, is that it goes into Star Trek history, but it includes things. Wow. (laughs) It includes a Star Trek comic book, to show you what that was like. It includes trading cards from a a Boston Star Trek convention that occurred. Uh, It includes decals. It's not a really detailed history. There's also pull-out blueprints. There's pop-ups. There's all sorts of weird, quirky things in this one. It's not a detailed history of Star Trek. It's more, if, if, if anything else, it's more a history of Star Trek merchandising basically. Um, So feel free to come and browse this one in particular, um, because it has got some really strange stuff in it. Let's see. Early volumes. Letters to Star Trek by Susan Sackett. Susan Sackett was Gene Roddenberry's executive uh, secretary, basically. And in the early days of Star Trek fandom, uh, she was one of the people that helped put out some of the volumes that they were desperately realizing, okay, we shouldn't have canceled Star Trek. There's a huge fandom that's built up now that it's in syndication. How can we capitalize on this? And so they started looking for ways in which they could put out books that would tap into that desired market, even though there wasn't new Star Trek being produced, one of which was Letters to Star Trek. There was also uh, um, some volumes on like the philosophy of Star Trek, where they would pull quotes from episodes and things like that and talk about how that tied into real-world philosophies. B. Joe Trimble is an author who has a very strong connection to Star Trek history. For many years, I don't know if you'll remember it, there was a Star Trek Concordance, which had a blue, bluish dial. It was basically the Enterprise's disc on the front, and you could spin it, and there were little holes cut out so you could see what the star date and what page in the book it was and stuff like that. The ear- earliest version of that Star Trek Concordance, this is a newer one, had its reputation for almost 15 years as being the most stolen library book in the U.S. Uh, and she, she did, was not particularly happy with that, but it was something that disappeared regularly from library shelves. And our library system, for instance, no longer has any copies of it. I personally have three of them because I wanted to make sure I had one that was in excellent condition because those disks eventually started to have problems. Help steal them? No, I did not help steal them. Um, <laughs> this it came out... Um, Back in the era of just after um, Next Gen, it was a completely revised one. It is still B. Joe Trimble's Star Trek Concordance. It is still just about classic Trek. However, in the updated version, she includes anything from the newer generations of Trek that tied in to classic Trek episodes. So if a character that appeared in a classic episode was shown in a new episode from Next Gen or Deep Space Nine, like the Klingons that showed up in Deep Space Nine in a number of episodes, those are profiled in this as well. Either volume is what I consider to be one of my absolute favorite collections of lore about Star Trek. The episodes each get their own description, there's fan art galore in these things, and then there is basically an encyclopedia in alphabetical order of all of the minutiae of Star Trek. The, there's an encyclopedia at the back in alphabetic order that is all the writers, all the uh, our, um, authors, um, all the directors, um, all the characters, the species, the planets, the ships, anything Star Trek oriented um, got its own um, little description in this. Which sort of leads directly into Michael and Denise Okuda's Star Trek encyclopedia, which takes that same concept and broadens it to the entire Star Trek universe. B. Joe Trimble's work was... Purely classic Trek, because that was what her, she was mostly interested in. The Star Trek Encyclopedia has gone through multiple different editions, uh, and each one includes more years' worth of content, so each one gets bigger and bigger. The current volume, which I have yet to purchase because it's still a little pricey, just came out for the 50th anniversary last year and is only available in a two-volume, each volume this thick, slipcase edition Uh, the uh, the cheapest I've seen it so far is about $80 for that two volume slipcase edition but it basically brings all of Star Trek history to the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, which since we haven't had any new stuff except for the reboot movies recently, pretty much would cover all the TV series stuff Uh, nonetheless, any Okuda um, volume um, I would highly recommend they also have put out a number of other things, I don't know if I have them here, probably not, Uh, they put out, oh there's one this is a fun one, also by the Yakutas. is the Star Trek chronology, the history of the future. It basically tries to take everything that was ever referenced in anything in Star Trek and put it into a concrete timeline. Um, so uh, a lot of it is just piecemeal bits and pieces of references to things that happened in 1920 or something like that. And then you get the Star Trek era where everything is very compact because so much stuff was going on in the Star Trek series. Uh, both uh, the next gen and classic Trek have had their technical manuals. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, the Starfleet technical manual, um, credited uh, to Franz Joseph Designs, uh, was one of the earliest of the nonfiction books and still is one of the most popular ones. Uh, It originally came out in a plastic bound edition as opposed to this rebound hardback edition. Uh, Next Gen, uh, after a couple seasons, put out their own version, which is the blueprints and the technical specs of the Enterprise D. Both are interesting. I personally find the uh, Franz Josef one to be really fascinating because it was put out in an era where they weren't really paying attention to what would be considered continuity within Star Trek. So the people that put this book out created lists of all the ships that had that were in certain classes, like the heavy cruiser class, the um, constitution class, stuff like that. They put out these massive lists, none of which necessarily corresponded directly to what was ever seen on screen. If it was on screen, they included it, but then they added to it. And the weird thing is that over the years, the Okudas, who helped a lot with the, the design specs for the next gen and later series, said that they would go back to this Franz Joseph manual and use facts created for the Franz Joseph Manual and establish them within the later continuity of Star Trek by saying, yes, indeed, there was a ship named that. And so suddenly a ship appears on Star Trek The Next Generation in a, a roster somewhere. And the origin of that ship's name was in this book from 20 years earlier. So is that the boat? Is it- uh Star Trek Phase 2 is another interesting nonfiction volume that came out. Uh, of course, uh, basically, this is what was going to be uh, a new Star Trek series that until Star Wars came out and became a huge spectacular in the theaters. the the studio that was going to do a new Star Trek series suddenly looked and said, ooh, Star Wars, money, it made lots of money, turn this into a movie instead, and so we got Star Trek The Motion Picture. This book is a history of everything that they did in preparation for making that new series, which never actually had a subtitle. It was just simply Star Trek Phase Two, And so somebody, uh, Judith and Garfield Reeve-Stevens, who have done a number of both nonfiction and fiction Star Trek, uh, pulled all of the data that they could and put together this history of a show that never happened. So fascinating. It's got photos including uh, makeup tests and special effects and ship designs and things like that. So uh, if you're interested in that one, especially the fact that it, there was not going to be a Spock in a different Vulcan Um, character was going to be on the show who ended up being modified into a character that didn't die at the beginning of Star Trek the motion picture so so that actor was like thanks I was gonna be a TV star now you kill me off This is one of my favorite books, and there's a secondary story to it. It is Harlan Ellison's The City on the Edge of Forever, the original teleplay that became the classic Star Trek episode. One of my favorites. Uh, Everybody probably knows, even though uh, City on the Edge of Forever is generally voted as the number one Star Trek episode of all time, Ellison disavows it, and and the story that he originally created is not what ended up on the screen, and so he's gone to great lengths to explain to people that what he wrote was better than... Than what they made. Well, yeah. this book basically reprints his original script and his version of the story. Uh, the interesting thing is that this came out back in the 90s, and very recently, in fact, I think it premiered at uh, last year's uh, Worldcon in Kansas City, a new audiobook has been released in which the content of this book and some updates since this book originally came out have been done as an audiobook, including large cast recordings not the original star trek actors but uh other recognizable names doing the script as it appeared and there's also multiple versions of the script with slight edits that ellison was asked to make so you can see his original storyline and two or three other variations on what it was um, and it has been released as an audiobook. Uh, it is fascinating to listen to really fun ellison is basically Narrating about 60% of it, and the other 40% is the narration of the actual script. Um, I will point out if you are from Lincoln and you have a Lincoln City Library card that we have a service called Hoopla, which is downloadable audio. That audiobook is available through Hoopla through the Lincoln City Libraries. You can just go to our website and download it and listen to it at your pleasure. We really don't have much time, so I'll just uh, mention that there are a whole lot of different biographies. The earliest biography, if you look at my handout... I am not Spock. And then later, I am Spock. Nope, the earliest biography... Well, those were part of it. The earliest biography... Oh, I'm sorry, you are correct. 75 would have been the earliest. I am not Spock because uh, he was wanting to point out the fact that he had lots of other things in his career, and then he had a lot of backlash against the title of his book, with people thinking that he hated Star Trek, and so later it was I am Spock. Shatner, where No Man, the unauthorized biography, was the first of Shatner's biographies, um, and of course he's put out more than he needs to in terms of biographies (laughs) since then. Um, He is probably the most prolific of the Star Trek actors in terms of publishing. Takei has put out a book, um, To the Stars, which was his biography of his Star Trek time before he revealed his sexual orientation, and then he's put out two books since then, so they're totally different reads depending on which one you um, end up with. Lots and lots of... uh, um, Uh, biographies of the classic cast and some of the next gen and later people are starting to come out with one I am in the middle of reading Born With Teeth Kate Mulgrews from Voyager her biography and it is fascinating as well the last two things I will mention really quick This book just came out for the 50th anniversary. It is the Star Trek book, Strange New Worlds, Boldly Explained. Uh, It is part of a series that Dorling Kindersley uh, puts out, which is filled with graphics. It goes into excruciating detail about lots of the history of Star Trek um, from all eras. Um, If you have a chance to see that one, I would recommend that. And a two-volume set, the 50-year mission, the first 25 and the next 25 years, which are basically an oral history of Star Trek, interviews with hundreds of people, who were involved in any aspect of production of the TV series. Some of them there's like just one quote, some of them there's dozens of quotes. It is honest, there's a lot of people that didn't particularly enjoy working on Star Trek, so there's a lot of interview comments in here that are not particularly happy about Star Trek, but if you're interested in an unvarnished look at the production of Star Trek from the people who actually were involved, Best Boys and Grips and stuff like that, these books are excellent. And with that, I apologize if you want to dig through the freebies. I'll push them over here by the wall. You're welcome to. I need to pack up the rest of my stuff. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. If you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts, you can do so by visiting our podcast page, at Lincoln slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. You can become a fan of our podcast by searching for Lincoln City Libraries podcasts on Facebook.